The Gospel according to Mark. If you're not there yet, turn to Mark chapter 1. We are going to dive into the actual Gospel in the Scripture that's there this week. Last week we did a lot of the background on Mark, why it's there. We are going to just touch on a couple of things because the Gospel of Mark is unique in so many ways. You get chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark kind of starts out, and Mark's not going to have a discussion with you. And the Gospel of Mark's not up for debate. You know, even when you look at the Gospel of John, John wrote to convince people. Mark's not writing to convince people. Mark's writing to tell you this is the truth and it's the way it is. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. It's not up for debate. Mark wasted no time in giving that announcement. It's found in the very opening words of the book. So as we think about the purpose of Mark, I think it'll help also as we put it together in the idea of What's going on with the Gospels? Why were they written? What was the purpose of the Gospel writers? And I don't want to spend the whole time on background of the Gospels, but just a little bit of information for us to help us understand what we're dealing here with Mark. Matthew wrote a Gospel. He wrote primarily for the... For the Jews. See, most of you already know that. Primarily for the Jews. And he wanted to prove to his readers that Jesus Christ is indeed the rightful heir of the throne of David, the Messiah. Luke wrote another gospel. Luke's emphasis was not on Jesus Christ as the King and the Messiah, but as the Son of Man. You see, Matthew was written primarily to the Jews. Luke is written primarily to the Greeks. And they're all into man and man becoming God. And so what Luke does is show them the only God-man that there ever was and ever will be. And he does that throughout his book, teaching his Greek readers that this perfect babe who was born in Bethlehem grew up to be the perfect man who was the God-man. Luke. John. John begins a lot differently than Matthew and Luke. It's very rare, I've done it at times, but it's it's fear and trepidation, that you go to John or you go to Mark at Christmas time. Why is that? Matthew's got a beautiful Christmas story in it. Luke has a beautiful Christmas story in it. John goes all the way back to eternity past. This is in the beginning was the Word. And he's going to talk about the eternal Son of God. And John wrote his gospel. He tells us exactly why in John chapter 20, verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John wanted you to come to the knowledge of who God is, who the Son of God is, and how God sent his Son that you might have eternal life. And then we come to Mark. And Mark doesn't really tell us why he wrote. Mark just tells us as it is. He wrote for the Romans. And the Romans were kind of like that. The Romans weren't your philosophers. They borrowed most of their philosophy from the Greeks. They borrowed a lot of their religion from the Greeks. But they were people of action. And so Mark writes this gospel. Church history tells us primarily probably for the believers to use, to share, to grow, and then to give out to other Romans who are under the teaching of Peter. And as I studied that, I thought about that because I like Peter. I like Peter in so many ways. And Peter was a guy, he, he wanted to get things done. He was a man of action. Peter didn't want to talk about it. Peter didn't want to dwell on it. And I could see why Peter wouldn't write about it. He, so that wasn't Peter's, the way he was built, the way he was wired. But John Mark is with Peter, and he's ministering with Peter according to church history in Rome near the uh, end of Peter's ministry. And he's hearing Peter teach, and the folks that are hearing Peter teach says, somebody needs to write this down. And so 
Again, it's the Spirit of God that's working, so don't take the inspiration of the Spirit out of there. But Mark writes, probably primarily from what he had gained from Peter, through the inspiration of the Spirit, to write this gospel, which is a gospel of activity. As we go through this gospel, Jesus moves from place to place very quickly. And he's meeting spiritual and physical needs of people constantly throughout this book. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. Some of you might have straightway. It means the same thing because stuff is happening like this. And even in Mark chapter 1, I started trying to figure out how do you break this down for preaching purposes? Because it goes from John the Baptist, well, actually the prophets, to John the Baptist, to baptism, to temptation, and only a couple verses, and then the beginning of his ministry, and then on to calling the disciples. And in one chapter, it's like Matthew takes chapters to go through that. And to catch your breath and see what Mark's doing, he's very, going to very quickly go through the life of Jesus Christ and who he was. He uses that word immediately 41 times. So as we go through the book, look for that word because there's significance to it. There's a lot of significance. We'll talk about it as we get there, but there's a reason he uses that word so many times. Mark does not record many of our Lord's sermons. If you want to get extra information on the Sermon of the Mount, don't go to the book of Mark. It's not there. In fact, a lot of what Jesus taught isn't in Mark's book because Mark wasn't writing a gospel to tell us what Jesus said. He wrote us a gospel to tell us what Jesus did. And he gets right to the point time and time again. So remember that as we go through here. Now, the expectation when you read Mark chapter 1. Go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1 again. And again, remember what we said last week. The beginning of the gospel... And in the mind of the Roman readers and the people of his day, when they heard the word gospel, what did they think of? Here is a proclamation of good news, often associated with either the emperors or the generals of the Roman Empire who had been out conquering. And when they came back to Rome and they were successful, you had a word of the gospel of that that campaign. The, The good news of how God had worked and what was going on here. And so the gospel normally... In the minds of the people, when they heard gospel, they would think pop and circumstance, fanfare. This is a big deal. This is a celebration. And so Mark says, here we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find in the book of Mark that what happens next is often not what you would expect. It's interesting in a book of action that it's not often what you expect that's coming next. Because as Mark makes this huge announcement about the Son of God, The gospel, the good news, that there's hope for you. Where is the pomp and circumstance? Who's the first man he starts talking about after that? Verse 2. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not Joel Olstein, to just put it bluntly, okay? John the Baptist was not in this nice suit. Prim and proper. John the Baptist, we read about it, and John Mark's even going to tell us about it. He was clothed in camel's hair. The, the latest in outdoor wear. He must have been a hunter. But you, you look at John, and, and he wasn't eating the finest of foods. You know, you, you kind of see John with his little toothpick out. I don't know if they used to. They used something there. But he used this, and he's getting the locusts out from between his teeth because he ate locusts and honey. So here's this great announcement of this king who's coming, of this good news and gospel. And instead of pomp and circumstance, we get John the Baptist. Why? We're going to look at that in just a moment because God has a plan. And what we're going to learn, and I want you to be looking for it as we go through this gospel, is that often God's plan doesn't fit with our plans. 
You know, now, was there some pomp and circumstance around the birth of Jesus Christ? The, the shepherds got it. Can you imagine the multitude of angels announcing? Mark doesn't even touch on that. Because Mark's purpose here is to show us who Jesus Christ is, through what he did, through how he worked. And so all of those things in the life of Christ in the beginning of his life aren't even there. And then another one of those things that makes you scratch your head when you see verse 1. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There should be fanfare. There should be all of this pomp and circumstance going on. And he's going to talk about Jesus Christ, not the Messiah, although it's in there. Jesus Christ, not the Son of Man who's come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, yes, but that's not even the underlying theme of his book. Mark's going to talk about Jesus Christ, the the servant. So why does he open up with the Son of God, and then he starts talking about a lowly servant who makes a huge difference in his day, John the Baptist. Leading up to the ministry of another servant, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the whole book revolves around chapter 10, verse 45. Turn over to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. If you learn no other verse in this book, set this one to memory. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, Therefore even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why are there no stories of pomp and circumstance in Mark chapter 1? Because Mark wants to show Jesus Christ as the ultimate servant. As the ultimate giver. As the ultimate sacrifice. And so all of that's coming as we get into this book about Mark. There's no account of his birth. No genealogy. No unnecessary information. Because when you're talking about a servant in Roman days, do they care about your genealogy? When you're talking about a servant, do they care about the day you were born and all that was surrounding it? And so Mark is going right to the heart of the fact that Jesus Christ, not that these things aren't important because they are incredibly important, but for Mark's gospel, he bypasses all those because he wants you to see Jesus Christ as a servant. Has Mark taken on an easy task? Did the disciples have a problem getting their mind around that? It's interesting that of all the people that Mark got his information from, who did he get it from? Peter. Did Peter have trouble getting his mind around Jesus Christ the servant? Right up until the time where Jesus is taken and beaten and crucified, Peter's ready to fight for him because he's ready for the kingdom to come in. And Peter's idea of the Messiah was not a suffering servant. Even though Jesus taught it over and over and over again. And we're going to see that as we go through this book of Mark. So keep all these things in perspective as we get to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. A few things to talk about from last week and then getting on to the rest of the passage. The beginning of the gospel of the Son of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, this is the beginning. And Mark's testimony about that is it's the beginning. And I get excited about that because as exciting as the gospel of Mark is, it's not the end of the story. You know what we're seeing the end of the story? We're beginning to see some of the end of the story in the Middle East right now. Any of you get nervous over the last month? You know, we start watching the Middle East. I was out in the middle of Nebraska when it all happened, and I wasn't getting news real quick. And so when it all hit me what was really happening, I thought, wow. Because now you've got Hamas and the Israelis 
Tensions rising, people dying everywhere, war is going on. And in the midst of that now, Hezbollah is getting involved. So the Palestinian Hezbollah group is getting involved. And Iran sees this as a wonderful opportunity to start sending drones and attacking our troops and going after Israel because Iran has no love for Israel. And you look at all that and people are wondering, are we headed to world war? We have aircraft carriers over there in the region now. We have men over there in the region now. We probably don't know half of what's going on over there in the region right now. And I say that because we watch the news and we get little snippets, sometimes of the truth and sometimes of half-truths. But what happens in our spirit? Anybody worried? Don't raise your hand. But anybody concerned? Anybody wondering what's happened next? Maybe I'm just a little bit too strange because I'm up here in the pulpit, but I'm excited. Because God said this was going to happen. Mark said, this is the beginning. And then I turned to Revelation and John said, this is how it's going to end. And it's going to end this way. So as Christians, we shouldn't be looking and saying, this is terrible. We should be looking and saying, hallelujah, even so come Lord Jesus. Because Jesus Christ told us, when you see these things begin to happen, look up. Don't look at the news. Don't look around. Look up because your redemption draws nigh. Isn't that exciting? Some of you don't believe me. You're still scowling. It's exciting. God is coming back and he's setting the stage and he's doing it exactly as he did. And why do we struggle with this beginning and then being near the end as Christians? Why does it bother us so? I tell you, part of the reason, it bothers, and this is all for free, we're getting back to Mark in a minute, but I thought about this as I thought about the beginning. You know why it bothers us so? Some of us, our roots are way too deep here, in the here and now. We keep forgetting that we're strangers, we're sojourners, we're aliens. Be careful, at least it's not July. We're not Americans first, we're Christians. And our Savior's coming back. And you don't want to be under the administration of the Democrats or the Republicans. You want to be under the registration and the administration of Jesus Christ. And it's coming. But is it going to come on an easy path? How many of you are here for the study in Revelation? If you weren't, you missed it. But there's a lot of things happening that aren't going to be fun to be a part of. And some of us look and we struggle with this. And I say that because as we go through the book of Mark, Mark's going to talk about what it means to be a disciple. And what Jesus told us our walk with him would be like. And sometimes we don't get what we expect there either. This is a book of unexpected endings constantly. And as you look at this, you say, you know, it's wonderful that we see prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. But if we're not careful in the back of our mind, we think, but I don't want to go through this. You know, that's been happening all through history. How many of the Israelites do you think wanted to go through 400 years of slavery in Egypt to set up the Exodus? But they did by God's plan, but through God's will. 400 years. People lived and died in Egypt. Do you think they wanted that? You think maybe they looked sometimes like we do and say, boy, we wish we had the old days back. I look at that and say, God, help me. Even as Mark is going to underline for us over and over again to say, God, make me a servant. And whatever time you put me into, I'm okay with that. And whatever I have to walk through, I'm okay with that. Just help me to be the disciple that glorifies Jesus Christ as I do. It'll change the way you look at the news. Probably quit looking at it. It'll change the way you worry about current events. You know, it'll tell, What's this going to do to the gas prices? I just bought a truck. What kind of an idiot buys a truck just before a Middle East war? But 
We don't have to worry about those things. God's in control. And he's got things going. And this is just the beginning of it that Mark talks about. The beginning of it, and he boldly states in the beginning that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's why we don't have to worry. God, through Jesus Christ, has everything under control. God's not wondering what's going to happen tomorrow like we are. And God's never worried because we serve a sovereign God. And part of all the immediately things are happening, things that the disciples don't expect, things that you and I don't expect as we're reading this gospel, is the hand of a sovereign God working in the ministry of Jesus Christ to teach us lessons. Not only life lessons, but practical lessons on how we ought to react and move and be as Christians. So all of this is in here as we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the gospel is, it's God's good news. God's son came into the world and died for our sins. That's chapter 10, verse 45. That's the heart of it. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The good news is that your sins, my sins, can be forgiven. It would be one thing if Christ came to forgive sins, but they weren't mine. It would be a wonderful story, but this story's for you and me. It's a wonderful gospel because we can belong to the family of God. We can have a right relationship restored with him and live forever with him in heaven. If this were the last place we had to look forward to, I could understand why what's happening in the Middle East now would be a little bit disconcerting to you. But this is all going to be gone. We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth and our Lord to reappear. And so all that's part of the gospel because Jesus Christ is going to get victory over sin and death and hell. And all of this in this little gospel is going to be shared with us. And Mark is giving us the arrival of the greatest king ever in one little phrase. And then he goes on to chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. Mark isn't going to debate with you. He's giving you the truth. But he's going to lay out why he believes everything is true. Number one, you've got his testimony of who God is, who Jesus Christ is. Number two, you've got the testimony of the prophets. Look at verses two and three. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When Mark goes from his verse one introduction to verse two, what has he done? We miss it if we're not careful. He says, as it is written, as it is written where? In Isaiah. Even talking to Romans, probably mostly Gentile believers, Mark looks and says, you know what? There's an Old Testament that works with the New Testament, and that's all God's story. And it all needs to be paid attention to. And so he goes to the testimony of the prophets. Primarily Isaiah, part of this prophetic utterance here in verses 2 and 3, comes from Malachi chapter 3, 1. Now, it's not that Mark didn't know Malachi was part of it, but often as you read through the New Testament and as they put different pieces of prophecy together, they'll basically just refer to the greatest of the prophets as a part of that and kind of lump it all together. And that's what Mark's done here. He takes Malachi's statement in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will repair the way before me. And ties it together with Isaiah 40, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's interesting to me as we get into this prophecy. This prophecy is about whom? It's John the Baptist. And of all the things, this quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, is found in every one of the four Gospels. 
And that kind of amazes me because most things aren't found in all four of the Gospels. You'll find a couple in this Gospel, a couple in that. That's why they write all harmonies, putting this all together. But this prophecy of Isaiah is found in all four of the Gospels. Why is that? Because it's a testimony to what Mark just said in verse 1, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Look at those verses. When Malachi said, Behold, I send my messenger, I prepare the way before me. Who is me referring to? Who did the people in Malachi's day who heard that me attach that to? Jehovah. Jehovah God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What was in the minds of the people of Israel when they heard, prepare the way of the Lord? Whose way? Jehovah's. And now we have John the Baptist, the voice in the wilderness, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, and who shows up on the scene? Jesus Christ. Mark is doing that to underline the fact of what he already stated in verse 1. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is very God. He's like no one else you've ever experienced. And so he goes into this, in this even in this beginning with these prophets, and what they're saying that Jesus Christ is God. And he's also linking the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to the Old Testament. You ever try to build something, fix something, work on something, and you got partway through it, and you suddenly said, I'm in over my head, I never should have started this. That's the story of my life. That's how I learn. You know, I remember as a young husband, I was going to be heroic, and I took part of all kinds of stuff that my wife had that wouldn't work anymore, and then we threw it out, and she got a new one. Because I got in the middle of it, and it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. And if we're not careful, sometimes we look at this whole History of the world in the Old Testament. And you look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And at the end of Genesis 1, God looked at everything and it was what? It was good. And then at the end of chapter 3, God looks at everything and it's what? It's all messed up by sin. Now that's what happens to me when I do things. And I look back and say, how did that happen? Did God look back in Genesis chapter 3 and say, how did this happen? And if we're not careful, sometimes we think God's almost like that. And then we translate it into our lives. And we say, is God looking at my life and say, well, how did they end up in this problem? And God doesn't work that way. God knew from eternity past exactly what we, he would happen. What would happen with creation? What would happen with sin? What would happen with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel? And you just go on and on through the list. God knew what would happen, but God had a plan. And Mark is tying that plan together, saying, you know, the Old Testament is there to teach us and to train us and to point to Jesus Christ who's coming. And Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, he's here. He's here. Y'all look like you're falling asleep. You should be excited about that. You know, it's like, we're getting ready. And true confessions, I guess, I probably should have done this before we did announcements. You know, we're having the Thanksgiving praise service on Sunday afternoon. I know normally we have it on Tuesday night. We're having it partially, and I asked, and I got, got some input on this, but we're having it because my wife and I are going to Buffalo. Because there's three little kids up there. I try to tell it's my, my, my kids it's them, but it's not. There's three little grandkids up there. And we want to see our grandkids. And we want to have a few days with them. And so we're leaving sometime during that week. And probably Tuesday afternoon sometime, we'll get to Buffalo. And I hate that trip. I don't enjoy the journey. You know, it's a long trip. But when we pull in and these little kids come popping out the door, 
And they say, they're here. Now they say they're here when I'm there because they know somewhere in my luggage I've got a package of Swedish fish and they want them. But they're excited about the arrival. We're here. Well, that's, Mark is so much more than that. He's looking and saying, this promised Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years is here. And if we can't get excited about that as Christians, we need to go back and read the book. Have you read the book of Mark recently? You know, I told you to read the book of Job. You say, yeah, you stuck me on that one. It took hours to get through that. But I understand that. You can read through the gospel of Mark in a couple hours. I read slow. I read it in a couple hours. If you don't want to read it in a couple hours, get it read to you. I did that too. I sat on the couch while I was in Nebraska, and I listened to the whole book of Mark in a couple hours. But read it through, and if you can't get excited by the end of that, then pray, God, work in my heart and my spirit, because that's who Jesus Christ is. That's who he was. That's what he did. That's what he's still doing in lives. And so this testimony pointing to Jesus Christ is the culmination of all that happened in the Old Testament. And then he adds to that the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 4. John appeared. Again, Mark doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. Jesus Christ appeared. Now John appeared. How did John appear in the wilderness? He doesn't tell us. To be honest, Matthew and Luke and John really don't say much about it either. They just say, suddenly John's there. Now we do get this from Luke chapter 1 verse 80. Talking about John, it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Why was John the Baptist born? You ever wonder why you were born? You know, God's got a purpose. He's got something that he wants you to do in the lives of others. And why was John born? We're told why he was born. You think about his birth. Was there anything interesting about John's birth? He was born to old people. Shouldn't have been having babies. Uh, Elizabeth was barren. If my wife came home tonight and told me she was expecting, I would pass out. And, and that's what you got with John. God miraculously gave this couple with no children, John, and said, he's going to be the forerunner. And, and John grows up, but he grows up where? In a very simple environment. He grows up in the wilderness. And, and by the time we get to verse 6, it says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. And, and again, you think about that, and it sounds very fascinating until it's you. How many of you want to be clothed with camel's hair, a leather belt, and for dinner today you're having locusts and honey? You know, I'm having salad today. I asked for it, okay? I asked for salad at lunch because I know what I'm going to eat tonight while I'm watching the football game. But I'm eating salad, but I'll take that over locusts and honey any time. No aversion to you who do bees and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, if that's all you've got, but that's what John's doing. John has a very simple lifestyle. And it says here in verse 4, in chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now we get into John's whole message. What's John doing out there in the wilderness? He's brought to God for a place to make the road. Verses 2 and 3 say he's come to, to make the road plain, to make it straight. To get everybody ready for the Messiah to come. And so in doing that, how does John make this road straight? And how does he get people ready for the Messiah's appearance? He's preaching. He's preaching a very specific message. To Jewish people, he's preaching what message? You need to repent. Did Jewish people take that very well? Most Jewish people figure they're okay because they are the sons of... 
Abraham. And yeah, they get it wrong sometimes, but it's okay because they're the sons of Abraham. And John looks at him and says, somebody's coming. The Messiah's on his way and you need to repent. And this whole idea of repentance, the idea there is a change of mind, but it's a change of mind that leads to a change in living. And I bring that about because it's the same repentance that Jesus Christ is going to talk about. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul is going to talk about when he says we need to repent and believe in order to be saved. And I bring that out because John's whole ministry is about repentance. And there's a lot of ministries here nowadays that are trying to downplay the repentance part of salvation. And there's a lot of ministries that will tell you it's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it is, so don't miss that, okay? Don't take this down the wrong road. But it's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But when you see that, we're told over and over again, we repent and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can't come to God with your sin and just live in your sin and say, God, save me too. It doesn't work that way. If it works that way, we owe a huge apology to the rich young man who came to Jesus Christ and said, how may I have eternal life? I've kept all the commandments. And he said, you know what? He hit the first commandment. It never really says it, but think about it. The first commandment said, you shall have what? No other gods before me. And Jesus Christ put his finger right on that commandment and said, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And he went away discouraged, upset, because he had many, many riches. And so if we could just come and, and believe, and that would be enough, now, don't take it wrong again. Say, oh, it's easy. This works. It's not. When we look at repentance, what does it mean to repent? And how do we repent? Repentance is the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. When he's come, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness of judgment. So it's the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And your repentance is part of the gift of God towards eternal life. Acts 1, 11, 18 says this. Then to the Gentiles also, God granted repentance that leads to life. See, part of the problem we have when we look at repentance, we often think, well, if I repent, that's my work. I figured out how bad I was. No, you didn't. The Spirit of God talked to you, spoke to your heart. I decided to turn to God. No, you didn't. The Spirit of God did a work in your heart and led and guided you there. And your faith has to be activated in with that. But as a part of that, that repentance is a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2.25 put it this way. Pray that God may perhaps grant to them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, what? It's a gift of God. Our faith is a gift of God. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. Do you know what it means to be dead? You don't suddenly become alive and save yourself. It's the work of a regenerating God who gives in there with his spirit, by his gospel, working in your hearts. And as John is working with a very proud group of people, are the Jewish people proud people? Why are they so proud? They're God's people. Hey, there's, I can almost understand a bit of it. But in their pride, they've also gone down the wrong roads with the Pharisees and the, the legalism and all of that, thinking they're earning their way to God. And John's message was what? You can't earn your way to God. John's message was, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be the sons of Abraham and not be right with God. Now, that's a hard message for these folks to take. But as John is plowing the way for the Messiah, he's coming with this message of repentance. But not just a message. Look at how it puts it here. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Does that mean as John baptized people, their sins were forgiven and washed away? 
Some of you are shaking your head, no, thank you. It does not mean that. But what it does mean when you think about all of this going on here and put the pieces all together, and again, Mark doesn't always give you all the pieces, but when you put those pieces together, John has come to a very proud people and say, you need to repent because you've sinned against an almighty God, and that's the only way to be right with him as we look toward the Messiah that's about to come. You're going to have to repent, and you're going to have to put your faith in him. And this baptism of repentance is a baptism that demonstrates that repentance has happened in the heart of these people. And the closest thing we have to it at the time of John before the church takes over and starts baptizing its converts in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is when Gentiles came and proselytes came and they wanted to be considered to be Jewish proselytes. They would be baptized, and it would be, a, it would be a sign to the Jewish folks that these proud Gentile folks have humbled themselves before God, and they want to follow God's way and do God's thing, and it was a testimony to them. And the baptism of John is the same kind of thing, only with proud Jewish people who were having to look, and they were having to say, you know what, it doesn't matter for the sons of Abraham. It doesn't matter if we've followed the Pharisees. We need to follow God's rules and God's laws, and we've sinned. And we need the Messiah that's coming. You say, well, how do you know all that's worked in there? Well, Paul puts it this way in Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Paul says this, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. That's what we're struggling with right now. Telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. John is telling people, you need to confess your sins before God and prepare yourself to get right with God through Jesus Christ. John doesn't have a different gospel. John's introducing them to the gospel, to this Jesus Christ who's coming. And this whole idea of baptism is to show folks that I'm believing in that. I want to get my heart right before God. I want to have forgiveness of my sin that's only going to come through Jesus Christ who is to come as I work through all these things. And the popularity of this message is amazing because these proud Jews, it says they were coming from Jerusalem and all of Judea and many of them were coming out to to John and they were being baptized, confessing their sins. And there's a revival going on in Judea, in Jerusalem. Was it long-lived? Think about it. Three years later, the same group of people were going to cry out what in the city of Jerusalem? Crucify him! It was, now, for some it was. Some of these disciples of John would become the disciples of Jesus Christ. Others would become the followers of Jesus Christ. But as John was doing this, he was preparing the way so that these folks would know what needed to be happening and what had, where to go next. And then in the midst of this wonderful message, Mark reminds us who John is. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. Why the description of John in the middle of John's ministry like this? Because John's ministry wasn't about John. If you wanted to follow somebody who would be a popular teacher, how many of you are looking for somebody dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt and locusts between his teeth? That's John. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you find John's kind of considered to be a little bit peculiar by some folks. How did Jesus Christ consider John to be? I think about John's life, and I'm like, I'm not sure I really wanted to be that obscure. Basically with nothing. He subsisted on what was around him. And Jesus Christ told his disciples one day, there had been none greater born of woman than John the Baptist. Now, he's talking about David. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these great people and patriarchs. And Jesus Christ looks at him and says, because of his humility, his willingness to serve, his 
objective as he looks at this, that it's not about me, it's about Christ. He is the greatest who's been born of women. Because we all struggle with that. Life ever become about you? Some of you are shaking your head yes, and some of you are just lying to yourself. Whatever. But life becomes about us if we're not careful. And the amazing thing about John, what we're given about John, John's whole life was about one thing. I am preparing the way for somebody else. And not just preparing, but look at his, his testimony of that in verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. You want to find people who are worthwhile preachers of the gospel, find people that it's not about them, it's about Christ. If you leave church Sunday after Sunday thinking, wow, that preacher was entertaining. He did a great job with with keeping my attention. He kept my husband awake today. It's a wonderful thing. It's not. If you don't go out those doors thinking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and this word and the way it changes your life, if it's about the preacher and not about the message and not about the Savior, don't stay there. It's about Jesus Christ. John was considered great because his whole life was pointing to Jesus Christ. And he even said, the strap of his sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And again, a little history behind that as we look at the end of this passage. The lowliest of servants were the ones who took care of people's feet and dirty feet. You remember the upper room? Disciples all get there. Jesus Christ gets there. No lowly servant there to wash feet. Who washed their feet? And what had he been trying to teach them over and over again? The greatest of you will be servant of all. And we look at John and Mark as saying, here's one who was the servant of all. In fact, here's one who looked and said, I'm not even worthy to be the least of the servants when you compare me with Jesus Christ. When our lives get to be at that point, God can use us in a mighty way like he used John the Baptist. And so John goes on to say this, verse 8, I've baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The end of John's testimony. Now again, a lot of controversy about what does he mean with this? And the charismatics have taken that baptism of the Holy Spirit and gone way overboard with it and taught things that the scripture is not teaching here. What is John trying to say here? John's trying to say, I am just a humble servant of the one who is going to bring to you the Holy Spirit of God that if you put your faith and trust within, he will change your life from the inside out. And John, all I can do is give you water baptism on the exterior to try and prove what's happened on the interior. But did it happen on everybody's interior that went out to see John? It didn't last long for some of these folks. And John's looking and saying, I'm pointing to the one that when he changes your life, when there's the regeneration by the washing of the word in your heart, it changes your life forever. And John points once again to Jesus Christ and the message that Jesus Christ would bring. Now we go from Mark's testimony to the testimony of the prophets to John's testimony to next week we're going to look at God's testimony. I thought about trying to squeeze that in. I guess it was a good decision since we're already at 10 to 12. But I'm leaving this for next week because we're about to see two foundational things that Mark covers as Jesus Christ gets ready to begin his earthly ministry. We're going to see the baptism of Christ and there's a lot of theological questions around that. Why did Christ have to be baptized? And then the temptation of Jesus Christ, and then he moves into calling his disciples. So we're going to look at all that, but God is going to give a testimony of Jesus Christ stronger than Mark, stronger than the prophets, stronger than John the Baptist, when Jesus Christ is baptized and he looks down and says, this is my beloved son. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. 
Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the book of Mark. And Lord, now that we're really going to be able to get into what Mark has to share with us, I pray that these foundational truths will help us to understand where Mark's going with the rest of this book. Lord, I pray that you'll do something that doesn't happen enough in our hearts, that you'll help us to be excited about the message of the gospel as we look at this book. Lord, help it not to be the same old, same old as we work our way through this. Give us fresh eyes and ears to hear what you're doing through this gospel in the lives of people and what you intend to do for all of eternity because of this message that's being shared. And God, I pray that even as we get ready to go to the Lord's table again this morning and remember what was done, that we'll remember it with hearts filled with love, with gratitude, and Lord, that there'll be just a little bit of a thrill and excitement in the Lord and the God that we serve. For it's in Christ's name we pray.